Hey everyone, it's Adam Farkas. Welcome to another edition of OD Wire Radio. On my left, as usual, is Paul Farkas. Hi, everyone. And I'm happy to announce that our studio is mouse-free this week. We've caught all the mice. We've eradicated them, so hopefully we'll have no rude interruptions by rodents. So. Okay, we're ready to go. So if you feel something crawling across your feet, Paul, I can't help you. I don't know what it is. So well, maybe a bug. It could be a bug, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, so on today's show, we have a very special guest. We have John Rampakis, um, so ODMBA, and everyone knows him on OD Wire. He's the president and CEO of Practice Resource Management, and John has actually agreed to come on and talk to us today all about a, a very favorite subject of OD Wire members, billing and coding. Um, in fact, when you look at ODWire, the most popular topics that we have actually uh, are around billing and coding. And I think it's just because people don't really know too much about it and they want to learn more. So, John, thanks so much for being with us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So why don't we just launch right on in, since Paul and I literally know less than nothing about this topic. Um, you know, we're, we're here to get educated, too. So why don't we just sort of jump in? And I mentioned that uh, billing and coding seems to be a hot topic among ODWire folks. Why do you think that is? You know, I think as the scope of optometries increased over the past couple of decades, uh, you know, I think that people are incorporating much more of medical eye care into their practices. Obviously, economics is, a, you know, very critical to their practices as well, and they've figured out the tie between the two versus, you know, because of all of the writings in the journals and the lectures, sites like your, you know, like your own with OD Wire, with the chat boards and things like that. There's a lot more communication about getting reimbursed by third-party companies. And so learning how to get reimbursed properly as, you know, is pretty much on the tip of everybody's tongue. Right. So, you know, John, I have one question. Uh, the older practitioners such as myself uh, that just are newbies to medical optometry don't even know what we don't know. Uh, but, but how about the younger people? Is there any sort of billing and coding being concentrated upon at the optometry colleges? You know, Paul, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, but it really depends. Um, I've, I have found in my travels and lectures at the schools that the expertise or the percentage of curriculum that's devoted to that topic, you know, varies quite widely from school to school. Um, you know, and I, and I also have a lot of reservations about what's being taught because oftentimes, you know, it's being taught based upon, well, this is what works in my office. And very rarely do people actually relate things back to documented or referenced rules that actually exist. And, you know, the other issue that actually comes up in the schools as well is, you know, let's say I was going to school in one state and we won't pick any by choice, but then I'm a graduate of that school. I learned the billing and, uh, you know, medical coding and compliance rules specific to that area. And I go practice in a state halfway across the country. I've got to relearn probably 80% of everything because the rules and regulations are specific to where I practice. Right. And so that becomes difficult for a school to actually teach. Right. And so is that one of the big areas of concern that you have with how the average OD is actually going out and trying to incorporate medical eye care and, and subsequently the billing and coding that they do? Is this sort of a big problem that you're actually seeing? Well, that's part of it, Adam. Um, I guess part of it also goes back to, you know, Paul's comment, you know, the, the more mature practitioners, they don't know, you know, they're learning on how to incorporate medical eye care into their practices. 
But really, what they don't really realize is that they may do zero medical eye care in their practices, and yet all of the medical coding and compliance rules still apply to them. What they write in their record, how they write it in their record, that's really the key fundamentals that every practitioner that is delivering patient care has to understand. And the the two major areas that really concern me are understanding how to document the reason that the patient is in the office or what we typically call the chief complaint. And then if we're starting to understand which carrier to bill is establishing the necessity for the services, for the level of office visit, or the additional procedures that an, uh, an individual be, would be performing on a patient. And in today's world of you know, computerization and electronic medical records, understand that this is becoming a hotter and hotter topic because audits are really, you know, starting to raise their head. Right. And are you actually seeing incomplete information and documentation or are people just frankly outright doing it wrong? Both. Um, I, I sit on the board for two different insurance carriers. And so I do medical record review and um, to, you know, levy penalties and things like that. And when I see records come across uh, my desk, I look at them and some of them are completely absent. In fact, I tell you in many of the audits, when individuals are doing um, additional testing, they're not establishing any medical necessity. It's not just done wrong. It's just completely absent from the record. There's no reason why the test was being done, that the practitioner is not demonstrating how that care or how that additional test is adding to the care profile of that patient. Remember that healthcare as a whole, the entire environment is now being driven by outcomes. So everything that we do, whether it's testing or treating or following a patient with office visits, has to demonstrate a better outcome. And we have to document that in the medical record. If we don't, our records are considered to be deficient or insufficient. Right. So when you're auditing, uh, what, are, what are the major red flags that uh, most ODs can prevent? Is there something that just stands out? Well, if I had to summarize it, I'd tell you that ODs in general are really, really good at telling the record what they are doing with the patient. You know, for example, Paul, you present to the office and I want to take a fundus photo for some reason. And so I'll write down fundus photo. But by and large, most ODs forget the most important part, and that's to say why I'm taking a fundus photo. I'd like to take a fundus photo of Paul's right eye secondary to the presence of uh, mild non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And so we have to state the reason we're also ordering the test, not just that we want to do the test or that I have a covered diagnosis for it. I mean, if I had to say what's the major red flag is that people think that they've got an open bank account with people's medical insurance. And as long as a diagnosis is a covered diagnosis for a particular test, they think that they can do that test and have complete justification. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, actually. On ODWire, we see that there's a lot of audits, not only done by medical carriers, but also from the, the vision care plans as well. Um, yeah. You know, people talk about this every day. And I'm sort of curious, since, since, you, since you battle this literally every day, what are you sort of seeing out there in terms of, of penalties? So now I'm going to make our audience really sweat. <laughs> what are the well, average penalties I'll, that you're let, seeing out there? It would, it would be hard for me to tell you an average. Let me tell you what I see myself, because I, I, I'll need to speak in the first person. 
I'll tell you that for the past 24 to 30 months, I have not seen a penalty under $100,000. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I've not seen anything that's come across my desk where the amount of money being asked for is less than a hundred thousand. Now that's before interest and penalties and things like that. That's just the money that typically a clinic has to pay back for uh, for services that were deemed to be unnecessary. Wow. Now, now was this for, for optometry and ophthalmology, or just optometry alone? Uh, primary, probably the records that I see are probably ninety five percent optometry, probably five percent ophthalmology. Um, certainly, you know, the vast, vast majority of what I get involved in is uh, uh, non-surgical or non-OR or non-ASC types of audits. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, that, that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a little bit shocked, actually. I'm sort of... uh, We're talking bankruptcy here. Yeah. Well, let me, let me give you a typical scenario. So a carrier, whether it's medical or whether it's refractive, is going to come into a practice and take a statistically significant sample of records. That may be 25 to 30 records. And they'll go through and they'll choose these records at random. They're not, you know, you know, I mean, unless there's a specific issue that somebody's being investigated for, but let's say it's just a random audit, or let's say that an insurer has seen a, uh, an increase in a particular CPT code. Let's say, for example, um, I got a new OCT, so I thought I could start to do OCTs on everybody. Or I got a new fundus camera, and I thought I could start doing fundus photography on everybody. And so all of a sudden now, a carrier starts to see claim data increase significantly for a couple of CPT codes. So they may identify those CPT codes as areas of concern, come in and take a random sampling of records that are statistically significant. They'll go through those records and they'll establish whether or not medical necessity was established properly and did people follow the appropriate rules for interpretation and report that go along with those procedures. They'll then have their findings and let's say out of that sample, they found that 23% of records were insufficiently or improperly documented. They'll now go back through an entire time period, typically up to three years, and they'll take that 23% and they'll extrapolate that against the entire patient base for three years, and they'll apply a monetary fine to that. Wow. So, so let me get this straight then. If I buy a nice shiny new piece of equipment like an OCT, before I even plug the thing in, what would you recommend that I actually do? <laughs> well... Here's how I would tell you to look at every patient. Remember that, uh, and here's, I guess, you know, I kind of, I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but I really kind of mean it. A patient's medical insurance is not the same thing as your malpractice insurance. You know, we don't do tests just to cover our behind. We do a test only when we can demonstrate that that test can benefit the outcome of that patient. It adds to that patient's care profile in some manner. So I have to be able to understand that shiny new OCT, what role does it play? Well, we know that if we take OCT specifically, we know that an OCT can see things that I physically can't see on direct examination of a patient. That's fine. But then I have to refer to my local carrier guidelines 
or local carrier determinations or what we call LCDs to determine an appropriate indication of medical necessity. In other words, what are clinically acceptable reasons for being able to do this test? Number two, what are the utilization guidelines? that are allowed with that. So if it's glaucoma, for example, I may be allowed to do OCT once or twice per year based upon that carrier's guidelines. I also have specific documentation requirements, both defined by the insurance carrier, but also defined by the CPT as established by the AMA. So I have to now be able to understand, okay, I have to interpret the results that this test gave me. It doesn't mean just signing something, you know, putting your initials on a piece of paper. It means that I have to evaluate the data that was there. I have to establish it. Was it reliable? Was it repeatable? What's my interpretation of the actual results? Or if it's a test that was done subsequently to another one, I have to do comparative analysis over the previous test. I now have to determine a care plan based upon that analysis that now says this patient is at risk, not at risk, what's the appropriate interval of follow-up, what does that follow-up or what does that plan for that patient look like based upon the results of that test. In other words, how did that test, how did I interpret that test, what were the results of it, and how did it add to the care profile for that patient? My goodness, you know, we're we're, we're a little over 15 minutes into this program, and uh, I'm sure my head is spinning, and I'm sure some of our listeners' head is spinning, combined with nausea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, I I, I do tend to get pretty passionate about this stuff. How can can a a practitioner stay stay on on top of all this information? It's an incredible amount to know. Yeah, you know, it really is. And and even for somebody like myself, Paul, it sometimes it seems like it's drinking through a, a fire hose because uh information is out there and of course I have to stay up on all fifty states because of the amount of lecturing and things that I do. But you know, there are a lot of tools out there that the individual practitioners can avail themselves of. You know, the AOA has some good tools on basic coding and, and do, you know, put on some uh, programs. I know you put on some, uh, your, your uh, OD Wire has webinars on, on medical coding basics and things like that. You know, I don't rely on books anymore. Uh, by the time a book is published, it's generally out of date. And, and particularly in, a, in an arena like this, it becomes very difficult for printed material to stay up, even printed material that's on the web. The other thing that's a, a difficult thing is, let's say, you know, you wanted to go out and find out something about fundus photography. So you go on to Google and you decide to Google fundus photography or CPT code 92250. You never know that the results that you're going to get Are they cached results? Are they valid or for where you practice? You know, you have no idea what you're reading or if it's applicable to you or if it's even current. And a lot of people rely upon either a basic web search or they rely on one of their friends, neighbors, you know, what they're doing. And they say, well, if they're doing it, then I'm safe. Those things just aren't good enough in today's world anymore. So, you know, one of the things uh, that I did years ago, it's uh, about... I guess 11 years now, I developed a real-time web-based service called Reimbursement Plus. As you know, we give a discount to your OD wire members out there for our service, but we're real-time data that is specific to that doctor's zip code so they can have every rule, every regulation, every combination of codes that they can use together, every policy, 
every guideline, every reimbursement about any uh, CPT code or any diagnosis code. We can tell you which diagnosis codes are covered for every CPT code. We can tell you every CPT code that's covered for every diagnosis code and give you the utilization guidelines and requirements for medical necessity specific to every single code. So we found that a web-based real-time system that's specific to where that doctor practices is the best way to give information out or for somebody to keep up on things within their practice. Right. So, so John, here's the, the million-dollar question, or I guess the, at least the $50,000 question. Even if you're using a software tool like Reimbursement Plus or another tool, um, do you think that a practice should have somebody dedicated in their office to doing billing and coding, or does the software assist enough that you really don't actually need somebody dedicated as long as the doctor is willing to, to use the software appropriately and keep up? Well, Adam, I, I think that both things are necessary. I think that, you know, a software system, irrespective of whether it's mine or anyone else's, is only as good as the individuals that are using it or utilizing it or accessing it. Let's take Microsoft Word, for example, just a word software, you know, a word processing program. Probably everybody uses it, but most people only utilize, you know, 10 to 15% of that software's capability. So I think that, well, software and having information at your fingertips is important. I think you also have to have a subject matter expert within your practice as well. If I look at the average MD's practice, not OD, but an MD's practice, the average MD employs somebody specifically dedicated to doing their medical coding, looks through their medical records, does all of the claim processing, and that person is responsible for compliance in all areas related to that. If I look at an OD's office, I see a mixed bag. I see some practices that are very sophisticated and they do exactly the same thing. They've got a dedicated uh, head of billing and they you know, ver you know, validate all of their claims and, and all of that. But I see others that kind of you know, are doing things you know, in a very disjointed fashion. And so they don't have any continuity. They don't have somebody who's in charge of managing change or being able to disseminate updated information throughout the organization. And that creates a lot of problems because when something happens, how do you, how do you tell everybody else in the office, hey, guys, we have to be aware of this. Something changed. So we've got to change what we do now day to day. Right. And, and John, when you've, you know, you've seen a lot of audits and you've seen a lot of docs on the losing end of audits, have you noticed any trends for those docs who actually have been on the losing end in terms of the way their practices run? Do they frequently just not have somebody on point handling this stuff? You know, it's, it's really tough. I think, I will tell you this, um, in, I'm going to say, uh, you know, I've never calculated a percentage, but I'll, I'll say it's 99% um, of OD's audits they're non-malicious, meaning not, there's not the intent to defraud. It's just complete lack of awareness or complete ignorance. The other thing I see quite a bit is people think, well, that doesn't apply to me or I don't have to follow the rules because I'm, I'm just an optometrist. So nobody's paying attention to me because I'm just a, such a small practice. And what people have to understand is that the uh, ophthalmic codes, the 92,000 codes, are in the top most frequent codes billed to Medicare. And so when we start to look at the frequency or the amount of dollars that are devoted to eye care claims within healthcare systems, it's a significant amount. 
it may not carry the same weight as a surgical code for you know ten thousand dollars, but it's still in the number of claims provided, it's still a significant amount overall. And of course, CMS generally sends most of the policies. What I see in 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 when people get audited, the vast majority of them are shocked. They're just they can't believe that they were either caught or they were doing something wrong. I do see changes in behavior though. Uh, most everyone that I've, I've worked with that who's been audited or who I've represented in an audit is very eager, very willing to make a change in behavior in their office to correct the deficiencies that they weren't even aware of. You know, So they found it out and they go, oh my God, I didn't know I was doing this wrong. And they're very much uh, willing to work in earnest to correct those things. Huh. And are the carriers pretty receptive to that? If a doc fesses up and says, you know what, I didn't know I was doing wrong and I'm going to correct these deficiencies, you know, going back X number of years, do they typically look favorably upon that? Or is once the deed is done, then you're just doomed? No, you know, I would tell you that most carriers that I've worked with, um, I can't tell you 100%, but most carriers I've worked with are very much. Um, what they believe in is education, 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 then penalty, uh, meaning kicking you off the plan or really, you know, uh, filing significant claims against you. Uh, most of them will make you pay your deficit, you know, first. So I, if I've been doing something wrong for the past three years, you know, they'll tell me, hey, John, you owe us $150,000. I'll have to pay that. But they'll say, you can stay a member of our plan, you can still see our patients, and we have to have these corrective measures in place. And now you have to demonstrate to us that you've made a change in your behavior. And they're very much aware uh, they want to educate the practitioner appropriately before they say, you know, thank you so much, we'd rather not have you as part of our panel anymore. You know, I, I'm what people don't. Oh, you know, go I, ahead. I, I'm convinced that every practice should have an expert on hand as you have the best possible lawyer or the best possible accountant. Now, once you pick the best possible accountant, or in this case, the best possible coding and math expert, are there differences in creativity and aggressive behavior in billing? Are all experts in this created equal? We hear a lot of arguments on OD Wire saying one one billing and coding expert says one thing, and the other billing and coding expert says another thing, and <laughs> so, some are far more Paul, conservative. You, you've just brought up my pet peeve. Um, and here's what, I, here's what I tell everybody in every lecture that I ever do. And I'll try to put this in the most generic of terms. I don't care whether it's me on the podium or anybody else on the podium that's lecturing about medical coding and compliance. Members in the audience, clinicians have to understand that information regarding medical coding and medical record compliance can affect their livelihood more so than any other type of medical malpractice claim that would ever hit. Because people have insurance for medical malpractice. They don't have insurance for medical record fraud, right? And so when somebody's on the podium like myself, one of the things that I do in every single lecture that I do is everything that I say is a reference point specific to where I'm lecturing. So if I'm lecturing in Kentucky, everything that I talk about, 
every policy, every procedure is going to be have a reference to it specific to that location because John Rampakis's opinion doesn't really matter. What matters is the referenced information that is available to a clinician in that particular location. What I find quite a bit from other experts that are lecturing on medical coding, they tend to give their opinion but don't provide a reference for their opinion. And I'm not saying that their opinion is wrong or incorrect. I'm just saying if somebody's willing to offer an opinion and, and tell somebody to do something a certain way in their practice, they better have a reference to back up what they're saying because they're putting that practice at great risk. Right. And speaking of risk, if there was you know, one thing that you had to caution listeners about in terms of billing and coding, so if they remember absolutely nothing else of what we've spoken about today, what's the one thing that you want people to take home and remember? I would tell them that please, before you do anything in your practice, before you start to bill for that brand new shiny piece of equipment, before you start to adopt a particular clinical care protocol or start telling the insurance company that I'm doing this level of office visit on every single patient. Know the rules, know the regulations, know the references for the material that you're using in your practice. Please stay current with everything because you're held to that current standard. And I want to give you something to think about for, for the future, um, guys. And this is something I want you to think about significantly because it's going to affect every medical practice in the entire country. Think about this for just a moment. Where, where are we heading with electronic medical records? We know that by January 2014, every medical practitioner country has to have electronic medical records within their practice. That much we know. Imagine how easy it's going to be for an insurance carrier with the new healthcare laws that are coming into place to start doing electronic real-time audits of your clinical and medical coding information in an electronic format. What if I was doing audits and I never had to go out to somebody's office? What if I could run behavioral patterns and analytics in my database against your records in real time? Scary thought. <laughs> you know, they, you'd, find scary, the outlier, you'd find the outliers pretty quickly, I would imagine. Yeah, scary, but not unrealistic. Sure. And what we have to start understanding, when we start talking about transparency and we start talking about medical record portability, understand that it doesn't just work on the side of the patient care. It also works on the back-end compliance side of things. Because, you know, I have people all day long that will say, well, I build this code all the time because I really don't want to know. I don't, I, it takes me too much time to figure out which code I'm actually billing for an office visit. So I just do a 99213 all the time. Or I heard the lecturer tell me I should be using the 99214, so that's what I do. And I'll tell them, I'll say, so, you know, we're supposed to have a nice bell, cu bell curve shape of codes that we do. I said, if I'm doing one or two codes all of the time, but aren't using the rest of the codes, I no longer have a bell curve. I have a bar graph. So I'm going to tend to stand out when they're looking at analytics. And so, you know, we can't put our head in the sand and think, well, we're just optometrists. It doesn't apply to us. Or I can't think 
I don't have to pay attention to these rules because they really don't apply to me. You know, we're, you're a healthcare practitioner. You've signed agreements both with the federal government and with local insurance companies. You're obligated to follow the rules of the CPT and of the ICD-9 because you are also bound by HIPAA, which was passed in 1996. So there's no excuses any longer to say that I don't have to pay attention to this. And when we start to look at revenue today coming from third parties, you know, in most practices, you're talking 85 to 90% of all revenues coming into a, an optometric practice from some form of third-party payment, whether it's medical or whether it's a refractive carrier. So it's not insignificant. It's something that you have to pay attention to if you're going to be part of the system. You know, for, for those that were listening and sitting at a desk, that's one thing. We have people listening to this on an, uh, an i. What, what's that called, Ed? The i... Oh, boy. <laughs> the, I, the iPod. Uh, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so, Paul, the pod, pod, Paul, 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 podcast. Paul who runs Odie Wire, has, has never actually touched an, iP an, iP an iPod in his life, I guess. No, yes. not in my whole life, no. So, I think the, what you're trying to say... <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, I'm listening to this driving a car, <laughs> the head is spinning, I don't want to just crash the car. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, if they had to take home one, one reassuring thing... <laughs> Uh, what, what would it be, John? What, what, uh, what could you tell them to give them some hope? <laughs> well, here's, here's, what I would, here's how I would sum it up, Paul. And I want you to think about this in, in the most simplest of terms. What is the only thing that an insurance carrier can use against a practitioner in an audit? That's the medical record, correct? What's the only thing that a practitioner can use to defend themselves in an audit? That's the medical record. What is the only thing that the individual practitioner has 100% total control of? The medical, medical record. record yeah. So every single one of the things that we've talked about are preventable. Every single one of the bad consequences are preventable. But people have to take an active role in making change in their practice to prevent these things from happening. And that means that learning is an ongoing process. You know, learning about medical coding and compliance is not an event, it's a process. I learn every single day. I read every single day. I know it's my area of specialty and I know that that's what I'm responsible for in the broader optometric community. But nonetheless, if I'm an individual practitioner, I better devote so many hours per week to staying on top of this stuff because I have the ability to prevent these things from happening. You know, audits are not going to be a question of if, it's going to be a question of when. And if somebody comes in to audit you, we've all had friends who have been audited by the IRS and they come in and they look at things and they say, hey, you did great, there's no penalty, we may even owe you money. You know what, in a medical audit or a refractive audit uh, by our insurance carriers, you can have the same outcome. They can come in and they can look at your records and they say, gosh, Paul, you did a great job. Everything here is documented appropriately. Congratulations. And that's it. That's the power that every practitioner has within themselves. Great. Well, that is a, a positive note to end on. Oh, so yeah, you, made, you made me feel much better. <laughs> yep. 
But uh, there are going to be, I would say, hundreds of questions out. Would you say this program is going to be listened to by thousands? Yep, yeah. And, and you know, John, what we're going to do is actually post this interview up on ODYR, and beneath the, the uh, podcast, the people can actually ask questions. So I'm hoping that this conversation will continue online, because I'm certain that you're going to get a lot of questions. Well, I love an open dialogue. I think that's the best way for collective learning. Absolutely. Well, John, thanks so much. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me today. 